in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15. And uh, when I got up on Monday and read the passage, which I kind of knew was going to be there, I thought, well, I got a tall order to fill today. Um, if anybody else would get up and try to explain this passage, you're welcome to. I'll, I'll just turn it over. Now, actually, I think, I think I'm, I'm ready. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, please follow along with me. Beginning with verse 1, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, remember Samuel's the prophet of Israel, Saul is the king of Israel, he says, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people, and we've seen that that happened um, quite a while back. He says, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, and now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Listen to what the Lord wants me to tell you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Now, I've included in the bulletin and up on the screen, we have a map here. I just, I hope this is helpful to you. I kind of want to give you guys some bearings, kind of give you an idea of where these things were happening, where they took place. In the map, you can see Telium is the top red X, the furthest to the north there. That's where Saul gathered this, this army to go and attack the Amalekites. And there in the lower part of Simeon is about where Amalek was, the city of Amalek. That's where they came and hid in the valley. And, um, and they told the, the Kenites. Now the Kenites and the, the Amalekites, they didn't have solidly defined boundaries as a nation, but these were Bedouin people. These were wanderers. These were sheep herders, Okay. And so they roamed around that southern part of Simeon and, and Judah. That's where they lived and where they roamed around. And when Israel left Egypt, within a week or two, the Amalekites attacked the Israelites, okay? And, and, and so as they were coming through that region. And, and so it says here that, that um, Saul attacked the Amalekites as far as, as Shur, which is the bottom left hand, X, there all close to Egypt, and as far over to um, the, the right X where in, in, uh, in Havilah, near Edom. Okay, so, so this was a pretty widespread battle that took place. Verse 8 says this, it says, And Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. 
All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction, though. In the verse 10, it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And God said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. He's not done what I told him to do. And when the, when the Bible says that God regrets something or that God repents, it simply means that he expresses a different attitude about something than he did before. Uh, not, because, uh, not because he didn't foresee or expect a particular event to take place, but because the turn of events makes a different attitude more fitting. Okay. Now when Samuel came and confronted Saul about his disobedience, Saul insists that he did do what the Lord had commanded him to do. That, that was until fam, finally Samuel just says, you know what, Saul, just stop. Just stop right there. And then verse 18, he says to him, he declares to him, he said, the Lord sent you on a mission. Remember, that, hear that? The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And then when Saul could no longer deny his disobedience, he began to blame the people and said, well, they took this stuff. But they took it um, so that they could then offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. But Samuel doesn't buy it. And in verse 23, the second half, he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So, so Saul rejects the word of God, and so he's being rejected as a king. Now, it's not going to take place right away, but basically his kingship's over with, okay? And then before leaving, verse 32 says that Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, That ain't true. He said, Samuel said, As your, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. May we be richly blessed by the reading of God's holy word. We pray. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult passage, one that I'm sure creates confusion for people. And so I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. And that we would think rightly about such things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I want to begin by acknowledging that today's passage is one of a few passages that tend to be the most confusing, the most controversial, the, most, the hardest to understand, and the most difficult to accept in, in all of Scripture. And I, I understand this is really, really hard stuff. And, People are often, and I'm sure many people in here today, feel a bit disturbed by the, the Lord's severe command to, to not spare, but to, to kill every man, woman, child, even infants, along with all the livestock. I mean, how can these be the words of God? Who, according to Psalm 145.9, says that God is good to all and merciful over all that he has made. I mean, so how can this be the word of God? 
I mean, how can, and, and then how can any pastor stand in front of his congregation and try to explain away or justify such a horrific act? How can any pastor stand in front of his congregation and declare that these really are the words of God? You know what, this is not the first or even the last time that we're faced with ethical issues in, in the books of First and Second Samuel, but, but the command to destroy even women and children and, and babies is clearly the most difficult one, and it is a stumbling block for, for many. Now, while these kinds of extreme challenges are far and few between, it is not uncommon for people to point to them as a basis for rejecting the Scriptures altogether and, and saying, you know what? I cannot worship a God like that. I don't believe God is like, I, can't, I, I refuse to worship a God that would do something like that. Um, but then there are others who still lay claim to Christ and still lay claim to the Scriptures, but simply choose to ignore or reject passages like this one altogether. Before I try to offer you what I think is a fair and reasonable explanation, I first want to talk about a couple of explanations that are, that, that are commonly offered that you may have heard before but either fall short or are simply unacceptable for those who believe in the infallibility, the inerrancy, and the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. For example, it has been suggested by some that that Samuel couldn't have been speaking for God, but rather he was speaking for himself. He must have simply misunderstood or misinterpreted God's words to him. Others have argued that what we have here is hyperbole, that God never really intended for Saul and the Israelites to completely annihilate even small children, infants, babies, all right? Um... Some have suggested that this is hyperbole because it was written decades or maybe even centuries after the events actually took place and that the story was either made up or exaggerated, but it didn't actually happen that, the way that it was recorded. But we have already seen for ourselves as we've been working through this book of 1 Samuel that, that 1 Samuel is a historic book that seeks to establish the truth of of things that really happened, warts and all. All right? So so that can't be the explanation here. Now, the most common explanation um, goes like this. People will argue, well, this is an Old Testament problem that's made right in the New Testament. That while God in the Old Testament is bloodthirsty... And full of wrath and anger, the God of the New Testament, as is revealed in Christ, is gentle and peaceful, loving, patient, and merciful. It's the idea that God operates at different ways, at different times, or in different dispensations. But this is a false dichotomy. It's just, that's not the right answer either, because the Old Testament repeatedly, and I think even in this story, repeatedly portrays God as loving, compassionate, patient, kind, and merciful. And I'll make that argument in a little bit. And not only that, in the New Testament, the New Testament never shies away from speaking about God's judgment. In fact, Jesus spoke about judgment more than anybody in the 
in the New Testament. In fact, what Jesus speaks about is even a greater judgment because he's speaking about eternal judgment. So the idea that God's attitude changes from one testament to the next just doesn't hold water. Not only that, in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And, and then if you move on down to John chapter 14, verse 7, beginning there, he says, if you had known me, you would, know, you would have known my Father also. For now on you do know him and you have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In other words, Jesus is talking about the incarnation. He is divine. So it appears that it was the pre-incarnate Jesus along with the Father who commanded the destructions of the Malachites, man, woman, and child, and even infants. Anybody who's serious about the Bible being God's word is going to believe that God really did command Saul to eliminate the Amalekites, man, woman, and child, along with the livestock. And I get it. The, the weight of this is heavy. It, it is very heavy. So the question is, how do we, how do we deal with it? How, how do we carry this kind of weight? How do, how do we address this kind of thing? How are we to understand this? In order to do it, I, I want us to move into the story and let's look at this together, beginning with verse 2. It says right here, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. So it appears that God is going to punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they came out of Egypt three or four hundred years earlier. I mean, all this stuff took place three, four hundred years ago. So you may say, well, what in the world did they do that would make the Lord so angry? Well, we know that almost immediately after crossing the Red Sea, we know that, the, that things got really, really difficult. There was a lack of food and there was a lack of water that began to take a toll on the Israelites almost immediately. And while the trip from Egypt to the promised land was hard and painful, difficulty in, in, in journey for everyone, it was especially hard for the weakest and the most vulnerable, the sick, the injured, the elderly, and those who were expecting children and those who were carrying small children. So naturally, these people had a hard time keeping up. These are the people who lagged behind on the caravan. Now, if you go to Exodus chapter 17, is where the Exodus is, all right? It's where the Exodus story is. In, in, in Exodus chapter 17, in, in verse 8, it says that Amalek came up and he came up to fight against Israel. Apparently, this, this took place within weeks of, of their journey. Now, we're not told how many were killed or how long it lasted, but we do know this. It was really bad. And God was really really angry. In fact, God was so angry that he told Moses this in Exodus 17 verse 14. He says, Moses, he goes, write this as a memorial in a book and recite this in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
And the, when the Lord says to have something written down in a book, it means he is serious. And what he tells Moses to do is he, he says, I want you to write down my judgments against the Malachites. And this judgment is declared for us in what he's recorded for us, we have in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 and 18, it says this. This is what was supposed to be repeatedly read. This was supposed to remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut you off, cut off your tail. Hear that? Those who were lagging behind you and did not fear God. It appears that what the Amalekites did that was so horrendous, so horrible, um, it, it, it was that they attacked the, the rear of the, of, the, of the caravan. They attacked and killed those who were lagging behind, who could not defend themselves. They attacked the weak and the faint and the weary, the helpless, the sick, and the elderly. They, they attacked those who were, who were expecting young children and carrying young children. And, and notice also it says that, that, that they did not fear God. Now this is not just some arrogant God who demands that they fear him. How dare they not fear me? No. What this means is they did not have a fear or respect of, of, a, of a higher being, of a greater being of, to whom they would be held accountable to. So there was nothing, because they didn't believe in, 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 in God, they didn't believe in, in, or at least the God of the Bible, they didn't believe in, in a higher being that would hold them accountable for their behavior. There was nothing to restrain these people's evil. And they attacked the most vulnerable, the, those who could not defend themselves. What they did was absolutely pure evil. Look at verse 19 with me. In, in, in Deuteronomy 25, it says, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in other words, once you get settled, he says, in that land, the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance possess. He says, at that time, he says, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, another objection that, that people will often offer is, wait a minute. The Amalekites attacked the, the Israelites three or four hundred years earlier. The, the people here who were getting slaughtered weren't even there at the time. I mean, how could this be just that God would have an entire people group killed for something that their ancestors had done so long ago? You know what? That's a fair question. One that deserves a response. And here's the thing, while we cannot deny that God does declare judgment against the Amalekites here, it can also not be denied that, that, that the Amalekites were offered mercy throughout that three or four hundred year period. In fact, Psalm 86.5 says this, that God is merciful and gracious, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord waited three or four hundred years. In Jeremiah chapter 18, it says this, verse 7 and 8, it says, if at any time... I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intend to do to it. 
So, throughout that three to four hundred year period, God was always ready and willing to reverse his judgment against the Malachites. But if you read our passage today, you will see, especially in verse 18, that the Amalekites had not changed over the years. They had not changed. They were still an evil people. They were still a cruel and evil people who did not fear God. There was nothing to restrain their evil. There was not a higher being, in their opinion, who would hold them accountable. So another way to look at this is that God was actually merciful. In fact, he was incredibly merciful. For three to four hundred years, he gave them an opportunity to change and to repent. But they did not, even till the very end. Notice that, that when they got ready to invade, they told, they told the Kenites, hey, you guys need to get out. Well, there's no way they can tell the Kenites to get out without the Amalekites hearing about it. But they refused. They stood firm in their, in their, in their, in their, in their obstinance. You know, as we work through First and Second Samuel, I know some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, what about the Zimpsons? What about the babies? And, and this is not something I enjoy to talk about, but as we work through First and Second Samuel, we are going to find that the descendants of those people, we're going to discover that because of Saul's disobedience, because of Saul's unwillingness to utterly destroy them, we're going to see that the Amalekites, and the Amalekites will continue to carry out all kinds of evil acts against God's people. I mean, even in the book of Esther, which comes to the very end of the Old Testament period, it is an Amalekite, some of you may be familiar with the story, it's an Amalekite by the name of Haman, who devises an evil plot in an attempt to have all the Jews killed within the Persian Empire. So these children, these babies, were not innocent because they, God knew that they would grow up to be just like their parents. They would grow up to be just as evil. Now, I understand this is not a popular thing for me to say. I get it. You know, it's not uncommon for modern-day pundits to equate what happened here with the ethnic cleansing or the genocide that has in the past and sometimes even today takes place around the world. But it is important for us to understand that this has absolutely nothing to do with the ethnicity of the Amalekites. Absolutely nothing. But rather, this was about addressing evil. It was about addressing pure evil. This was an act, a unique act of God that was in no way meant to be a model for the people of God once they entered and once they finally settled in the promised land, nor is it to be a model for the church today. You know, the fact is, we have a pretty good example of this even today. What the Amalekites did is very similar to what we call terrorism. And I want to say, I finished this sermon on Thursday, so I might look a little prophetic today. <laughs> I, have a, I have a quote with Benjamin Netanyahu, um, and I planned it on Thursday before Hamas attacked Israel yesterday. And I'm not going to change anything that I have to say. Um, what Amalekites did to the Israelites was very similar to what we consider terrorism today. The Amalekites carried out an act of war against the weak, against the faint, against the helpless, 
against women who were pregnant with babies or carrying small children. He, they, they attacked those who could not defend themselves. And God was enraged by it. This was not some petty, vindictive act of God, but rather it was a reflection of God's judgment. And as I said yesterday, we saw the Hamas terrorists sent 300 missiles into Israel, killing at least at this point 300 people, wounding hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, indiscriminately, they sent these missiles in, killing men, women, children. They've kidnapped even women and children as hostages right now. This is going to be a big deal. This is going to blow up. But what I'm going to say is this is the kind of, this is the indiscriminate evil against people who cannot defend themselves. This is what the Amalekites did. I, I, I found a quote and I said, I, I, I downloaded, you can go back and check my, my computer. I downloaded this Wednesday or Thursday and I plan on reading it to you. It's a quote by Benjamin Netanyahu who spoke before the United States Congress several years back. <clears throat> here's what he said. He said, terrorism is a crime against humanity. We must consider the terrorist enemies of mankind to be given no quarter and no consideration from their, from their propitiated grievances. If we believe to distinguish between acts of terror justifying some and repudiating others based on sympathy, based on this and that cause, we will lose the moral clarity that is so essential for victory. This clarity is what enabled America and Britain to root out piracy in the 19th century. The same clarity enabled the Allies to root out Nazism in the 20th century. They did not look for the root cause of piracy or the root cause of Nazism because they knew that some acts are evil in and of themselves and do not deserve any consideration or understanding. They did not ask whether Hitler was right about the alleged wrongs done to Germany in Versailles. They, that they left to the historians. For the leaders of the Western Alliance, nothing justified Nazism. Nothing. We must be equally clear-cut today. Nothing justifies terrorism. Nothing. Terrorism is defined neither by the identity of its perpetrators nor by the cause they espouse. Rather, it is defined by the nature of the act. Terrorism is the deliberate attack on innocent civilians. And that is exactly what we have today in our passage the attack of the Amalekites was against the weak, the faint, the weary, the helpless, those who could not defend themselves. And it was an act of evil and cruelty that was met with God's decisive judgment. You know, the full gospel, and I'm talking about the full gospel. The good news in all its completeness, it always includes the year of the Lord's favor. And we sing and we worship and we praise that all the time. But it also always, the full gospel also includes the day of God's vengeance. While the Lord's people who are looking to Christ will receive his favor, his, the Lord's enemies will receive his vengeance. And it, the fact is, we live in a day and an age and kind of a location in the world where, for the most part, we're shielded from such heinous acts. I mean, we see gangs that, that terrorize neighborhoods and small pockets, but, but most of us don't live there either. We live in a day and an age and a time where, where in a location where we're, we're shielded from many kinds of evil acts. 
And, for the, and, and even for those who are not Christians, most people believe there is a higher power, that there is a God who will hold them accountable for the way they live. And for those of us who have not been the victim of such heinous acts, we've got to ask, is it possible that we just do not understand what God's suffering people always have? In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, John gives us this picture of, of saints who have been martyred by evil people. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, martyrs, for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And look at this. These are people who are redeemed. These are people who have, have been fully redeemed by God, who have been set free from any form of sin, right? And they are under the altar of God, and they are crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So even the redeemed, even those in a fully redeemed state, look for God to punish the wrong that was perpetrated against them. The fact is, what comfort can there be for the people of God if the Lord were simply to look the other way, to ignore, to sweep such evil under the rug and pretend that it didn't happen? What comfort can there be for God's people if the Lord were simply to simply look the other way against the cruelty of enemies against them? Again, this was, we've got to understand, this was not genocide, but rather this was divine judgment. God would, and here's the thing, God would only do, because we know enough about the Lord, the Lord would only do such a thing if a people had reached a certain level of wickedness and if people had proven themselves unwilling to repent. We've got to understand that there was no injustice in the Lord's command, but rather it was morally right for him to judge such evil actions. And in this passage, God clearly, God himself clearly declares that his judgment and his vengeance against the Amalekites was indeed just and right and virtuous. And if that is indeed true, then his judgments should not be repudiated, but they should be praised instead. And if this is not enough to convince you or satisfy you, then there's probably not much that I can say that will. Again, I, I realize this is, this is hard. This is really, really hard to read, let alone accept. It's hard to read and accept passages like this, but the fact is, this is how God presents himself to us in the scriptures. We can't just pick and choose how God what God reveals to us about himself. And here's something else that, that, that is sometimes hard for people to hear and to accept. But this judgment against the Amalekites is actually a picture of God's final judgment against the world, against everyone, against us. I'll say it again. This 
Judgment against the Amalekites is a picture of God's judgment against everyone, against us. When we read accounts like this in the Bible, like the one we read today, it's easy for us to get caught up into thinking that the Amalekites were the bad guys and the Israelites were the good guys. And because our sympathies lie with the Israelites, and because we would never do such horrible things that the Amalekites did, we then also see ourselves as the good guys. But that is not how we should be looking at this passage. Romans chapter 3, Apostle Paul writes this, he says, What then, are the Jews better off? Not at all, for we have all, we, we have already charged that everyone is under sin. As it's written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, seeks for God. All have sinned, has turned, all have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, you may not be capable of doing the, the cruel things that the Amalekites did, but the reality is, if you were born back then, you very probably would have. You know, we look down on, on, on slavery. We think, oh, I would have never done that. Yeah, probably most of us in the room would have owned slaves or endorsed racism or, or segregation at some point if we were brought up in, in the proper condition, in, in the inappropriate conditions. And the odds are that there's future generations are going to look to us and think, how in the world could they have thought, fill in the blank, that we take for granted today? No one is good. No, not one. Yet because of our helpless estate, the Lord sent His one and only Son. Because of our helpless estate, the Lord sent someone who was and who is righteous to live a life that was holy and, and pleasing to the Father. He sent His one and only Son to trade places with us to act as our substitute to receive the wrath that you and I deserve so that we might then receive the blessing that, that He deserved. Let's prepare, pray and prepare our hearts to come to the table. Heavenly Father, um, this is such a heavy passage today. Lord, it is amazing to think that our sin was placed upon you on the cross. That the Father took his wrath out on you in our place. It is incredible to think that he is so merciful that he would do that. But not only that, that he would place your righteousness upon us. Lord, we acknowledge that we are not acceptable for you because of anything that we bring to the table. But because of what you bring to this table. Your life. 
Lord, as we approach the table, we come in humility. Knowing that it is not deserved, it is not earned, but it is pure grace. It is pure mercy. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.